The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome. This uh, is the first night on a series on connection. And in these four weeks, I intend to explore a number of different ways of what is connection, connected to what, connected to whom, as well as you know, how, do, how can we practice um, to enhance connection, to work with loss of connection with others, with things that are important to us, with ourselves. Such an important concept, this idea of connection, and it's such an inherent part of our lives, or maybe it's not an inherent part of our lives. It's such a, I mean, it has a role in our lives, whether we have a lot of connections or not, that affects us. In fact, um, you know, often chaplains go into hospitals and they work with individuals who are in the hospital. Some of them, of course, are terminally ill and may never leave the hospital. But often what chaplains do is they do a spiritual health assessment to go along with the usual health assessment that uh, individuals have. And part of that spiritual health assessment is this assessment of their relatedness. Do they feel connected? Do they feel connected to other people? Do they feel connected to things that are important to them? Or do they have a sense of alienation, disconnection from others? And as part of this uh, spiritual health assessment, they point to this kind of, there seems to be an absence of connection that can contribute to this certain type of existential suffering that may be exacerbating, contributing to the, their um, other health issues or maybe their healing issues. So it's recognized as a real part of the human experience, this wish and the need, dare I say, for connection. In fact, neuroscientists doing some neuroimaging and some other studies have shown that that there's connecting with others and this kind of our social part of um, our lives is as fundamental human need as food and shelter and water. That same parts of our brain get activated as as uh, get activated with other really important aspects of our existence. Perhaps part of the reason why connections are so important is sometimes they're tied to our sense of meaning or identity with our lives. Sometimes the way that we think about ourselves or find meaning for our life is. Oh, I'm the parent of so-and-so, or I'm the child of so-and-so, or I'm the partner of so-and-so. Part of that, our relationship to others helps form the way that we identify with ourselves and part of how we might navigate our way through the world or not navigate our way through the world as the case may be. But also, Barbara Fredrickson, she's a prominent researcher on uh, emotions and love. I think all of us probably have recognized that moments of, this is a quote from her actually, 
moments of connection with others are the, are the tiny engines that drive an upward spiral between positivity and health. Right? When we have a, like a heartfelt connection with somebody that spurs something in us that then makes it easier for us to take care of ourselves or to um, work with our other relationships we have or whatever it might be. We sometimes hear about downward spirals. She's talking about an upward spiral. So all these things point to the importance of connecting with other people, with relationships we have with others. But maybe I'll add, you know, kind of um, recognizing the importance of connections with others, the fear of disconnection also is very powerful. I know I have said and done things, you know, in the former version of myself, earlier version of myself, I certainly have said and done things that this fear of disconnection caused me to say them, that maybe they weren't the most wise, maybe they weren't the most helpful, later regretted, but just that fear of like, I can't, this holding on to this bond, holding this relationship is so important. What will I do? What will I not do to, in order to preserve it? Sometimes there's tremendous pain surrounded with that. And also, it's just uh, kind of true that as we age, that um, when we have more and more responsibilities with our professions, our jobs, sometimes friends tends to take a lower priority. Sometimes maintaining relationships tends to sometimes take a lower priority compared to our partners, our jobs, our children, our siblings, our parents. And so we may find ourselves as our lives progress with maybe a little bit less meaningful connections with other people. So with this as a background, I kind of wanted to spend these four weeks kind of unpacking this. Not all of these four weeks will be about connecting with others. Part of them will be about connecting with ourselves because sometimes we feel disconnected from ourselves. But for today, I'm going to focus on connecting with others and relationships. But if you were to just read about Buddhist practice or meditation practice, you might think that it's primarily a solitary affair. After all, we all came here, we sat down, closed our eyes, right? we didn't really talk to each other. And, and if it's, in some ways, it's easy to imagine that. However, I think those of you that have been practicing meditation and practicing mindfulness in daily life or informal meditation practice or practicing loving kindness, all these different kind of Buddhist uh, practices, what we discover is that rather than it's being isolating and a completely solitary endeavor, that meditation and helps us bring us into the web of life more fully. That is, as our minds start to quiet, 
as our hearts start to soften a little bit, maybe just a little, maybe just a little, not a whole lot, right? It doesn't require a tremendous amount. But as we start to move in that direction, we discover that meditation practice, rather than cutting us off from one another, and rather than leave me alone, I'm just going to meditate, and I don't care about you, I'm just going to close my eyes and sit here. There's a certain aspect of that, right? There's a certain aspect of seclusion that happens when we're meditating. But often what happens is we start to recognize and realize kind of the intricate nature of our relationships get illuminated. We start to see them in a new way. As we start to put down with meditation practice or just the simple settling of the mind, some of the preoccupations that we have just the busyness of our minds. As those start to go down or soften or maybe not be quite as loud in some way, we start to understand that our our relationships or perhaps um, the nature of them or the intricacies of them, we start to see them a little bit differently, maybe more clearly. Not only relationships with other people, but of course we start to see, like, oh yeah, of course I'm sitting down to meditate and my mind is crazily busy because I just rushed here from work and the traffic was terrible and I didn't want to be late and I didn't have the chance to send that email and then my boss sent this to me and oh my gosh, I better remember to pick this up from the grocery store, right? It was just our lives, our days, maybe just filled with this. And so, of course, when we start to sit down, we might see that. And so in the same way that we start to see connections between how we spend our time and what shows up in our meditation practice, we can see the connections between what we're starting to do in our meditation practice, what we notice, or again, if there's any quieting, how that affects what we do next how that affects how we are in our daily life, how we are in our, in all our relationships, both with objects, with ourselves, and with others. As we we start to quiet the mind, it just becomes the more evident how things influence one another. Maybe these webs, these interconnections that aren't so obvious when we aren't paying attention. When we aren't preoccupied with the things that preoccupy us. So Buddhist practice, meditation practice, might seem as a solitary affair, things that just really promotes an individual finding more freedom, more peace, just a single person doing this. Because after all, right, the Buddha is often depicted as a solitary figure just sitting there by himself. Often this is such a common stance, right, to be meditating. His eyes closed. Or certainly not gazing out. Sometimes his eyes are a little bit open. He's depicted that way, but... And maybe I'll even add, if any of you are familiar with reading the suttas, the scriptures, the early Buddhist texts, there is an emphasis on seclusion. You'll see this over and over again. But one thing that makes sense why we see this emphasis on seclusion, there's a number of reasons, but one is 
in ancient India, right, the social, the context was really, really different than today. They didn't, people didn't live by themselves in apartments, drive in cars by themselves to jobs, sits by themselves in cubicles, or have an office by themselves, or whatever it might be, right? They just didn't exist. It was all about community and social connections. You didn't go off to university, you didn't go to school. Instead, it was all about family and community exclusively. And there was a, in this time in ancient India, there's more of an um, emphasis on um, the collective, the group, as opposed to the individual. You had to make a real effort to spend time by yourself, to be doing things with your mate, perhaps your own independently do something. So that's why, and kind of the part of the reason why, we might see that there's this emphasis on seclusion. But now in kind of contemporary West, if here in Silicon Valley, probably elsewhere, I'm sure, we don't have that context. We don't need to be told to spend time alone. Probably many of us do already spend a certain amount of time alone. Maybe not, too. But I'm sure many of us do. Maybe I'll just say one more thing about um, Buddhism before I kind of bring it more into um, how those of us here and now can practice with connecting with others. This idea of connection is just inherent and even the whole idea of Buddhism. In the sense of, there wasn't, this is what the tradition holds, I don't know if this is actually true, but I'm actually not so concerned whether it's true, but this is what the tradition holds, is that there's an individual whom we call the Buddha, who was enlightened and had these teachings. 2,600 years ago, that's a long time, that's a long time ago. The only reason, the only reason, the only reason why we have these teachings today, whatever form they're in, whether they're accurate or not, I don't know, is because there was a community of people who said, oh, these are important, important to us. Let's preserve them. Let's pass them down. Let's remember what this person, the Buddha, is saying. Let's memorize them, remember them share them with others, share them with the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. 2,600 years, how many generations of people have been holding these teachings? I've heard Gil Franstall, the founder of this center here, say something that was really meaningful for me. I think, it, I think he attributed it to the Zen teachings this idea that the teachings are passed from warm hand to warm hand, from warm heart to warm heart. It's connections that people have. It's community that people have that preserve these teachings and make them available. I said that was the last thing I was going to say about Buddhist saying, but I have one more. (laughs) 
early when I started um, studying Buddhism, I heard this expression, and um, it sounded intriguing, it sounded charming, it sounded um, evocative. I didn't quite understand it. I feel like I understand it better now. And there's this story where the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, says to the Buddha, something like this. Hmm, I don't remember the exact beginning. It's something like this. Um, it's true that the half, is that what you said, Lewis? Yeah, so that's what I'm trying to figure out. How does this begin? See, so Lewis even knows what I'm about to say. So if you've been around the Dharma scene, right, this is a well-known saying. Um, something like half of the teachings of the holy life, good friendship is half of the teachings of the holy life, something like this. Half of the teachings are good friendship. Maybe it's that way. <laughs> and the Buddha reprimands him and says, "No, no, don't say that, Ananda. Half of the half of the holy life is good friends. Maybe that's it. Half of the holy life is good friends. Holy life being, you know, living the spiritual life." And the Buddha says, "No, don't say that. The whole." of the spiritual life is good spiritual friends. That's quite something. That's quite something. So you might ask, well, how does that work? When I first, the very, one of the very first times I ever came to this center, to IMC, it was on a Wednesday morning, and I met some people there. We um, had lunch together, and it turned out to be tremendously meaningful for my life to meet people, to have the opportunity to just talk about our meditation practice, to talk about what the teachings we had just heard. Like, did you understand that? What does he mean when he says this? And it reminds me of that. And to make them come alive, right? Instead of these abstract things that we talk, that we just heard, but to engage in dialogue and to share them with others. Tremendously powerful and supportive and helpful and to help me make them my own in a way that made sense for me. There's less an emphasis here on, I would say there's no emphasis here on these dogmatic things that you have to believe. Instead, there's this, there's an offering of some ideas. Invitation to use them to support your life. And this movement towards greater freedom, greater ease, greater peace, greater well-being. So the Buddha says, I do not see even a single thing that so causes wholesome, skillful qualities to arise as good friends. Probably we know this in our own lives too. So I just told a little story about how meaningful and impactful it was for me to kind of meet some people here and we became friends, we'd hang out at the coffee shops. It was just really, really one of the blessings of my life. I also have the experience, and maybe you guys have had a similar experience of um, going to a movie. I told this story 
not too long ago, maybe it was even in this setting, going to a movie in which there was a lot of profanity. That's okay, sometimes that's how movies are. So, you know, I got engrossed in the movie. I don't now remember what the movie was. This is what I remember is the profanity. And then walking out of that and talking to my friend, and I was using all these four-letter words (laughs) that come spilling out of my mouth. Right, just having been inundated with that, right, we just kind of pick up what we're around. And I was quite amazed at the things I was saying. (laughs) So this is part of, you know, the company we keep. The company we keep influences us. So it can be a great support for our lives to honor and respect those relationships we do have. So having connection with others, I've talked a little bit about how important it is, just in general for our well-being. But it's also important for us, it plays a role for us to find greater ease, greater peace, greater freedom, this path of practice. One is I just shared the story of talking with others about the teachings and helping to interpret them in my own way or with others. Something happens when we're in dialogue with others. Often we learn something about ourselves. When we are sharing like our interpretation, we re- when we're forced, or not forced, but in conversation, when we try to put things into words to share them, we might discover a different understanding. If any of you have participated in some of the programs here at IMC. We have quite a few of them. Even Dharma Practice Days, Eightfold Path Program, Entering the Stream Program, Dharma Mentoring Training Program, Ethics and Enlightenment Program, Local Dharma Leaders Program. Right, There's quite things here. A big part of that is getting in small groups and talking with peers. Just this recognition of the power of that. Another way that connection and relationships with others has um, supports us on finding greater freedom and on the Buddhist path of practice is having teachers, meditation teachers, Dharma teachers, having a relationship with somebody with whom you can share your practice, what's happening, Maybe share difficulties you're experiencing. Maybe Dharma teachers have some answers. Maybe they don't have answers. But I feel confident that all Dharma teachers have as a intention to support and respect and honor and try to help and show up and see the individuals. As well, Dharma teachers can be exemplars, somebody who has, hopefully, found some peace and freedom. I know I have. I have, I have found my way with tremendous amount of peace that I didn't have before. 
all this meditation practice, working with teachers, is one of the most beautiful things ever. So how do we form connections or support those connections we already have? Would you be surprised if I said that mindfulness helps? So mindfulness is a way of just being present with our experience, just being here and now, in a way that's as open and spacious and not tight and judgmental as best we can. Sometimes we, we find ourselves being tight and, or lost in thought completely and concerned about something in the future or worried about something in the past. But just as best we can to be mindful really supports connections in a number of ways. One is we're more apt to be paying attention to whomever we're with. If we have a commitment or an aspiration to be mindful, to be present with whatever's happening, then we're less likely to just be lost in our phones <laughs> when we're sitting with somebody because we can recognize the distraction or the lost quality of that. So we're more apt to be connected. We're more apt to be interested in what they're saying. If we're being present for what actually our experience is, we're more inclined to actually be listening to what other people are saying, to be paying attention. If we have that experience of some mindfulness meditation, then we know what it feels like to be paying attention We can recognize when we're lost, when we're distracted. And of course, mindfulness helps us to see ourselves more clearly. As I said, we can notice when we're being distracted. But relationships require both intention, and space. Relationships require some earnest effort to connect with someone, either by inviting them to a cup of tea, starting small talk when you are meeting with them, sending an email saying, something that creates a connection. But relationships also require space or some breathing room. That is, right, we can have, or we, uh, we can be like initiating connection as part of relationships, but also there can be sometimes a clinging, a grabbing, a holding on, a squeezing of relationships. So mindfulness of ourselves can help us feel like, oh yeah, there's some real grasping going on here, some real clinging. 
Maybe we're not seeing the cues that the other person is giving us that we're holding on. Maybe we're not feeling the cues ourselves unless we're mindful of them. Unless we're practicing a certain mindfulness. What does it feel like when we're really grasping and holding? So maintaining relationships has, requires this balance, a little bit of effort to reach out and respond in whatever way is appropriate for that particular relationship. But also to be sensitive to when there's too much leaning in or holding, as well as when there's not enough. So sometimes we learn these things with ourselves What does it feel like to feel nicely connected, to have an intimacy with the moment? What is it like to actually be with the moment, to be completely here? We can recognize that feeling when we're in relationship with others, whether we're speaking with them or spending time with them or... gaining some familiarity of what does it feel like to be kind of like collected in here as opposed to always distracted can help guide us to know when we're not connected to others when we're spending time with them as well as that as I said the familiarity with um, knowing when we're leaning in too much so mindfulness can kind of like shines the light of awareness on our thoughts and our feelings. For some of us, that may even mean gaining some familiarity with our thoughts and feelings. I'll talk about this some more in a subsequent talk about sometimes we feel disconnected from ourselves. But it's the same feeling. We somehow know when we're kind of like collected here and not completely distracted and fragmented or or trying to do you know uh, multitasking right we all know that difference from kind of like being relaxing and being closer to being in the zone being really distracted so mindfulness practice both the meditation practice in terms we gain familiarity with these feelings and this intention to practice mindfulness in our lives, to be present with what's actually happening in our lives instead of sleepwalking through our life, which sometimes is tempting to do when we have difficulties or things seem boring or don't seem meaningful. Again, there's, a, there's a tendency or a, um, sometimes a, a wish to disconnect. But to connect with this moment also helps us to connect with others and to see what's really happening. Not only that, that mindfulness also helps us to experience sometimes when there's a heartfelt connection with another person, there's some joy, some delight, some warm-heartedness, openness, spaciousness. So mindfulness allows us to recognize when that's happening, when it does, and to allow ourselves to be nourished by that. 
Allow us to be nurtured, to be fed by that. Sometimes we tend to be dismissive, like, yeah, yeah, I have this relationship, but I really have this problem over here. And maybe we are dismissive or discount good friends, old friends. Maybe sometimes these casual conversations we have. I've had this. We're just a small encounter to share something. Something that's the content is mundane with a person you don't have a lot of intimacy with. But there can be a, I don't know, a sense of delight in sharing it. Sometimes this happens on meditation retreats. Those of you who go on meditation retreats know that even though we are in silence for a long duration of time, it's quite something, the connection and the intimacy that can be developed with people that you never speak to. There's something about, I don't know how to explain this really, <laughs> washing the dishes as a way of caring for other people or holding the door open for somebody or whatever it might be. So mindfulness helps us to feel those moments. Even if we, maybe they're not common in our lives, but for us to not be dismissive when they do arise. Mindfulness also helps us with the pain that is also sometimes associated with connections with others. It's not always delightful. It's not always easy. Maybe we have, maybe we're holding on too tightly and just that alone, that sense of, oh my gosh, I can't let this go, is painful. Maybe there's a loss of connection. Maybe somebody doesn't want to have a relationship with us anymore. It's terribly painful. Mindfulness can help us to be with that experience too. I think all of us know that we can't run away from these things even though we might try. They always arise, they find us again. So with mindfulness we can just start the process of being with our difficulties rather than running away with them. And not only to be with our difficulties, but to be with them in a way that doesn't exacerbate them. But instead, hopefully, allows us to see the bigger picture. Maybe to see some things that we didn't see before that preceded the breakup. Maybe mindfulness can help us not get too lost in the pain. And hopefully mindfulness can also help us to see that even though we may be in the midst of some painful disconnection, perhaps some mindfulness practice can help us to see that there's other experiences that we're having too 
even though that may be the one that's the most painful and may feel like the most dominant. It can feel like our our um, attention can collapse into that. Whereas a mindfulness practice can help remind us at the same time there's sounds happening, there's other thoughts that we have that aren't so painful, there's other relationships that we have that aren't so painful. Not as a way of ignoring that that painful experience is happening, but just not so that we don't collapse into it. So these are the different ways in which mindfulness can support our connection. The delights as well as the pains, as well as initiating and nurturing those relationships. Something in addition to mindfulness is generosity. Generosity also supports connection. Hopefully all of us know what it feels like to receive a gift. It can be like this also, this little sense of delight, but a feeling of being seen and being cared for. Recently I was sitting in a retreat down at um, the Insight Retreat Center, the retreat center that's associated with here, down in Santa Cruz. Many of you may know that everything there is offered freely. Everything. People stay there, you stay there for a week, all the food, all the, everything, everything. It's quite something. But it really kind of became, um, I don't know, this a little bit poignant when I was down there and I ran out of dental floss. <laughs> Such a mundane thing, right? <laughs> and they have this uh, closet, it's called Yogi Needs. As somebody who's on retreat and it's called a yogi. Yogi Needs Closet. Well, I'll go down here and see if they have any dental floss. (laughs) I open up the closet. Wow. I don't know. I was so touched. This freely offered dental floss, toothpaste, toothbrushes, aspirin, deodorant, shampoo, soap, (laughs) anything you felt like you needed. It was just there, freely offered. And lots of it in the sense of, you know, it wasn't like the last one. I felt like, oh, I felt cared for. I felt like, wow, I felt like I wanted to donate lots of money to IRC so that other people could have this experience too of just this feeling of, okay, generosity of other people have enabled this. Not to support my shopping habit or my acquisition habit, <laughs> which you know, a lot of society does to support that, but to support my meditation practice that I wouldn't be distracted about not having dental floss. It would just be a piece of, just open the door, get some dental floss. So, receiving a gift can help us feel cared for, help us feel respected, help us feel seen. And that, of course, helps support a sense of connection But to give a gift, whether that gift is a material object, whether it's our time, it's our energy, our expertise, but to give a gift also enhances our self-respect, our dignity. We 
reminds us that we have something to give. And hopefully it brightens our hearts and our minds to think that what it might do for others. Often we give gifts thinking like, oh, so-and-so will really like this. Or out of appreciation for that, the, what we have received and wanting to have other people to have that same sense of appreciation or to receive a similar generosity. So in this way, kind of generosity is kind of a thread that connects people. Sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. And it's probably for this reason that in the Buddhist teachings, generosity is often spoken about as a practice. Not only because it's a thread that connects people, although that's quite important, but also it helps support a sense of letting go when we give. That movement of giving, it's the same movement of opening our hearts or softening some clinging that we have. And holding tightly, like pulling close and squeezing really tight, as it turns out, is never the way forward. Is never the way to greater ease and freedom. Probably you all have this experience. Really holding things tightly <laughs> doesn't lead to ease. So, in the same way that generosity helps support connections with other people, it helps support this general movement of openness, letting go. So that also can support the, the sense of community or a sense of belonging. If we're not holding on so tightly, often that, that supports, it tends to be a cycle of self, uh, self-occupation, tends to hold this grasping. But the more we grasp, it tends to kind of support this sense of sense ocup- self-occupation. So in any way that we can soften and loosen that, then we can start to say, oh yeah, there are, we can recognize this web of interconnection that I spoke about earlier. And it can help us ease out of these narrow confines that we might find ourselves in. Then maybe I'll say one other thing that kind of helps connection as well as helping our lives and our practice. And that is just the simple practice of just basic ethics. When people feel safe around us, they know we're not going to harm them. We're not going to take something from them. We're not going to say malicious things about them. When they know that they can trust us because we have some, we're upstanding. 
then with that trust, then there can be much more flexibility and give and take and giving the benefit of the doubt in relationships. Or even more of a willingness to enter into a relationship. I remember a number of years ago talking with somebody who was... um, we were supposed to meet, and this person was already there, but they were on the phone. And um, you know, they, I waited patiently while they were getting off the phone. And then when they got off the phone, they said, oh, sorry, I couldn't get off the phone, this person, and, start, and said some kind of unflattering, a little bit mean things about the person they were on the phone with. I felt like, I don't actually want to actually now talk to you because how do I know that the person you're going to talk to after me, you're going to say all the same things about me, right? So when we are upstanding and don't say, don't gossip about other people, don't say derogatory things about other people, when we don't um, try to get things that in a way that when things aren't freely offered, trying to wiggle our way, like, oh, I need more of that. And people just, we don't tend to trust as much people like that, right? So to support connection, support our relationships with others, is just to behave in a way people trust us. They feel safe around us. They can share something with us, and we're not going to say it to other people. And that we are in touch with our feelings and when they're sharing things with us, maybe our mindfulness practice can help us to to feel like, oh, when something is difficult and maybe we can share like, wow, that's heartbreaking to hear this. And we can say that because we're feeling it in our heart. So mindfulness practice, I'm talking about being an an upright person, but also I'll say that mindfulness practice also helps us to develop some ethical sensitivity, to just be aware, just more and more of these subtle ways in which we can help people feel safe, trust us. We can see subtle ways in which, oh yeah, actually I am taking this person's time more than they offered. They said they have this amount of time and I'm taking up more and more. Or as, we bec- as our minds kind of quiet down, we start to see more and more that ways in which we can even be more and more upright, upstanding, ethical. So connection with others is such an important part of our lives. It can be beautiful, It can be painful, right? It can be both. And meditation practice, mindfulness practice, Buddhist practice can help us with this aspect of our lives. With generosity, just to notice how to be generous or when we are generous, when we experience people being generous towards us. And a commitment to behaving in an ethical way, a 
ways, practices that we can do to really support this dimension of connection. So I think I'll stop there. And we have some time for some questions or comments, if there are some questions or comments. Hello. All of this resonates, and I have known about it, but this helps bring it all in focus, especially in the last year or so. Because it has occurred to me that people I have been close with have fallen away, and especially when something big happens, it was... One year ago this day, I had heart surgery. Oh, so, Mark, I'm so, happy that you're here with us now. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in the fallout from all that, everything got focused very inward and very... And it's now that everything is sort of settling out that that I recognize the truth of how all that has played out. And this is quite helpful to put this all in one package, so mm. thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I have been uh, thinking about something similar the last uh, couple of days, well, probably last month, and uh has to do with the difference between connection and a desire for friends, or a de- like... When I was younger, I know that I wanted friends, but there was a suffering attached to it. And I guess the wish for connection is different in some way. And I don't really know what my question is, but I just know that it's something that I've been thinking about. And I don't know exactly what the difference is, but I know there is one. That's all I had to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about this because I've been thinking about this too, right? It's like, what is connection and relationships and friends? What is the relationship between them? And maybe it's, maybe it's both. I, I, I mean, I don't know for you, but I was thinking, like, it's to not feel alienated. Maybe it's to put it in the negative in some ways, like, you know, to not feel disconnected is part of the the wish or the something. I don't know. That's something that I was thinking about. I don't know if that's helpful or useful or resonant. Thank you. Okay, so it's nine o'clock. So may you all... Find some connection that nurtures and supports you. And I'll stay up here if uh, anybody has some questions or comments they'd like to say. Thank you. <laughs>